Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Richard Hingley about his award-winning examination of the establishment and development of London as a Roman city, entitled Londinium, a biography. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Yeah, I'm a Roman archaeologist. Um, I work on the Iron Age, too, so my interests span the period from about 800 um, CE up to the late Roman Empire, but I have much broader interests too, uh, and I'm a professor of Roman archaeology in Durham, um, and I developed a book on Roman London because it sort of um, is focusing a number of issues which I've spent quite a lot of time working on during my career, and also because uh, accounts of Roman London are rather dated, and I felt there was a need to update published research which aims to synthesize the information for this major Roman urban center. That's one of the things that struck me when I was reading it, which was just how much work is ongoing with Roman London. You're, 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 what you're describing is not necessarily a sense of we have done archaeology of, Lond- of Londinium and this is what we found. You're describing what is really a, a work in progress. I, I, exactly how much have we uh, really learned about uh, Londinium in the uh, three decades or so since the last major books were published? Yeah, the Ross really um, significant synthesis of Roman London was published in 1990 by um, uh, Dominic Perring. Now, at that time, um, rescue excavations, so the sort of commercial large-scale excavations that um, have revolutionized our understanding of Roman London had begun. So, uh, Dominic Perring was able to call on um, quite a number of quite large-scale important excavations. But since um, uh, Dominic's time, the scale of archaeological excavation has really, really expanded because London, over the last 30 years, has you know, developed as a very major economic centre. And it was in the 1990s, but the scale of development has been very, very substantial. And we've had some very, very... Um, very important, very large scale, and also very well-funded projects, which have really revolutionized our understanding of the nature of this Roman city. Now, one factor, I think, behind that is prior to the 1990s, quite a lot of the attention of archaeologists had focused on the sort of high-status public buildings, the sort of elaborate buildings like the Forum, and... um, structures like uh, the amphitheatre. And uh, since the 1980s or so, far more attention has been paid to the houses of the sort of average people of Roman London. So what we have really now is um, probably, you know, the best understanding that exists of any urban centre in the Roman Empire in terms of the lives of um, the average peoples that lived within this urban community. And the scale of this knowledge is really tremendous. But one of the issues that I also explored in the book is 
this doesn't mean that we really understand London in great detail because we've only excavated a very small proportion of the total available archaeology. I mean, I stated in my book that it may be that we've managed to excavate and examine and, and understand, say, 5% of the archaeological, um, the buried archaeological information for this Roman town. Uh, so, you know, we have to construct knowledge in an interim fashion and build understanding according to what we can actually understand from that, say, 5% of a very, very complex picture of an evolving urban centre that existed for um, almost four centuries. That's for me, was one of the things I really enjoyed about reading your book, which was the your willingness to... Uh, to revise a lot of our understanding about uh, London during the Roman era. And it starts even before the Roman era because you begin your book by talking about the pre-Roman uh, Iron Age in the era in the area and what how human settlement was like there. I was wondering if you could start us off by talking a bit about that period and the ways in which our understanding of that period and its impact upon Londinium have changed over time. Yeah, well, I think one of the fundamental issues there is that I started off by saying that I work both on the Iron Age and Roman period. Now, archaeologists in Britain, and this is true internationally too, tend to focus on one period or the other. So most Roman archaeologists have not had an interest particularly in the Iron Age. And most Iron Age archaeologists don't um, have an interest in, say, Roman London. So the past accounts of Roman London have tended to separate the Roman urban development, often what happened in this riverine landscape, this river landscape, uh, in the pre-Roman period. And I've argued in the book that actually we have to think about London in more um, complex terms and think about continuity a bit more. So perhaps not to divide the Iron Age so strictly from the Roman period. Now, I do still believe, you know, having looked at the information that Roman as a town, uh, London as a town is a Roman creation, and we'll come on to that shortly. But um, what happens in the late 40s and early 50s CE builds on the significance of this uh, watery landscape in the Iron Age. Now, we have a whole range of um, important discoveries that have been made in the Thames, um, items of Iron Age metalwork. Um, that had been deposited in the river uh, before the Romans arrived. Um, the Waterloo helmet and the Bassachi shield are two examples of uh, objects which um, are Iron Age in date. And I argue in the book that what's happening is that people are actually visiting uh, the Thames in London, which is far wider in the Iron Age than it is today, and they're leaving dead people, the remains of their dead, on the banks of the river and on the islands of the river to erode in the tide. And um, objects and bits of people are getting to the river as a result of these meetings and the disposal of dead members of the community. Now, this seems very different from what you might interpret as a Roman town. Uh, the Romans come into this landscape and they build urban infrastructure, but... I do believe the significance of this meeting place during the Iron Age is part of the reason it develops as a significant Roman town. 
I like uh, one of the points you were just making, and it's one I want to return to just uh, for a moment, which is the fact that the physical landscape of this area is very different than people who are familiar with London today might be aware of. You describe a, an environment that is uh, marshier, that you're talking about uh, less village, uh, more islands. And I have to say that what really makes this uh, especially uh, uh you know, understandable are the number of maps that are in your book. You you have these maps of London, which are just you know, which is are just wonderfully clear and and really demonstrate show where the islands are, show where all the finds are, show where all the where all the all the uh, buildings were located. It really helps to visualize what it is that you're describing uh, in the text. Yes, thank you for that. I mean, uh, basically, the the maps um, took a lot of work, and I have to say they're based um, very extensively on the research of other people. So the information that's conveyed on those maps, as the information in the whole of my book, is actually based on the research of generations of archaeologists. And we have very good information about the uh, location and nature of the Thames throughout the Iron Age and Roman period, as a result of excavation and environmental study. And uh, we map out in the book um, the location of the river and how it changes in different ages of Roman London. And you can see very um, easily from this information the way that the Thames is actually controlled, um, not during the Iron Age, it's relatively uncontrolled. It's wide, it's riverine, it's in a series of channels and we have um, several um, very significant islands in the Thames. Um, during the Roman period, they build up the banks and they construct wooden um, wharves along the north bank of the Thames and they fill in the channels. So the Thames becomes a bit more like it is today. Now, the maps in the book were uh, the work of um, Christina Unwin, who did the illustration work for my book. Uh, the publishers, Bloomsbury, have been very good at um, emphasising the ma- major contribution that Christina made to the book that uh, we both produced together. And, and it really helps in terms of you know bringing this uh, all these discoveries and really what uh, Roman London was like uh, really to life for the reader. And I, I, I say it was it, it really it really was a very impressive production job, much more so than I've seen in other accounts of Roman London that I've read. Thank you. I mean, I think that was recognised, actually. Um, the publishers, Bloomsbury, uh, put it forward for this award you mentioned. And uh, I think this this is probably partly a reflection of all the hard work that went into the production of the maps and also the production of the book. Because as an author, you're really dependent on, you know, people who help you, um, both the illustrator and the editorial team at Bloomsbury. And, uh, you know, both Christina and myself are grateful to Bloomsbury for their work, too. I'd like to uh, shift our focus now talking about uh, the establishment of uh, Londinium and and, and the first uh, decade of its existence. Why was it that the Romans chose to uh, plant a community there? What what was it that, that uh, that the area offered? And what do we know now about that first decade or so of its development? Mm, Indeed. I mean, we need to think about who the Romans were already, because um, the Romans are an assortment of people. And the most obvious people during the invasion of Britain are really the Roman military and the senior officers who lead the military. So the governor who comes in in uh, 43 CE and uh, then 
you know, the, the military units that campaigned to conquer uh, southeastern Britain. But the people who found Roman London are uh, rather different. Um, Roman London is an informal um, establishment, as far as we can tell. Uh, there's probably no um, very simple decision to actually establish London as a town. We think it develops because it's an excellent trading location. And actually, if you're looking at the location of Roman London from the Thames in in 43 CE, uh, it might look a very difficult place to urbanise for the reason we've explored already, because the river there is um, tidal, it's complicated, and a lot of the land is very very low-lying. So thinking about London as a port, it's close to the continent, so it's an excellent location. The Thames is tidal, so you can bring big um, boats up to where the Roman town is now to develop. Um, But you have to do a lot of work to actually make that port work. Now, initially, you'd probably bring your boats up in the Thames, and you couldn't bring boats up to the edge of the river, so you'd have to have a small um, boat to actually unload produce. So very early, and we don't quite know when, but certainly by the early 50s, um, the, the first port facilities were being constructed in London along the north bank of the Thames. Now, it looks as if this decision to do this um, major urban operation is something that is a result of uh, a number of um, wealthy and influential traders. So the Roman Empire, you know, is partly run by people who are looking for economic opportunities. And our picture of Roman Britain is usually dominated by the idea of military invasion. So we pay a lot of attention to the arrival of the military and the campaigns of the military. But a whole other group of people connected with the military are actually exploiting economic opportunities. So we know um, from Tacitus that London in uh, 60 CE um, is a community of traders. And these people will have come from overseas, from other parts of the empire, to exploit economic opportunities. The major discovery recently, one of the major discoveries, which has really helped us to understand this early process of urbanization, is the discovery of the Bloomberg writing tablets. So during one of the major building operations in London in the last decade, uh, a whole range of writing tablets have been found, and some of these date to the 50s, and they tell us the names of several uh, individuals who are involved directly in economic activities, um, bringing goods into London and exporting goods from London, and they give us names and they give us some details of some of the economic activities that are underway. So this reinforces the view that London is, I mean, if I say not a very formal um, development as a town, what I really mean is that the people who are making the decision to do this are actually not members of the senior administration and the governing classes of the Roman Empire. They're people involved in trade. They're important, powerful, wealthy people. But it may be a decision that's made without much government involvement by anybody within uh, the the governor's community in the early conquest of Britain. 
But really, just to reinforce, the reason for the development of London is because this is a very, very good location for international trade. So we have this port uh, developing, and it's becoming a, a, a trade center, and yet the port almost uh, dies before it grows because in, you have this uh, dramatic event in, in, in 60, 61 CE when the city is burned. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon those events and what we are, what we now, what we're coming to learn about the events about uh, the destruction of Londinium. London's burnt down, we now think probably in 80, sorry, 60 CE, uh, there's been quite a debate about the exact date of this event, um, but uh, 60C is probably the best date now as a result of um, some discoveries from the Bloomberg writing tablets. Now, what's happening at this date is that um, a famous historical figure called Boudicca is leading a rebellion um, of a, a series of peoples from Eastern England. So Boudicca was the partner or the wife of a friendly king of Rome called Prasatagus. And he ruled a people called the Iceni, who were um, living in what is now northern East Anglia, in Eastern England. Um, in 60 CE, Prasatagus, Boudicca's husband, dies and the Roman uh, governor or the Roman government of Britain, decide to annex the territory of the Iceni. They've been a friendly people of Rome, so they've been left, they've been supported, rewarded, but left largely alone during the conquest of Roman Britain. Now, Boudicca, with the assistance of another people, uh, leads a major rebellion or uprising against Rome, which almost drives the Romans out of Britain, according to Tacitus. Now, she burns the Roman colony at Camelodunum or Colchester initially. So the main symbol of Roman domination in Britain, this developing Roman town at Colchester, gets burnt to the ground. And we believe um, quite a lot of people, including Roman legionary soldiers, are killed in that event. Then she leads her army uh, to London, and we're told that she burns London. Tacitus tells us that some of the old people uh, and a few individuals who didn't want to leave were killed, but he also tells us, well, he infers that most people had time to leave. After this, Boudicca led her uh, army to St Albans or Verulamium, which is just north of London, and then destroyed that settlement too. Now, the Roman governor, who's off uh, campaigning in Wales, finally returned and managed to defeat and kill Boudicca and destroyed her followers. And uh, we're left with this picture of the Roman province in turmoil, really. Uh, Tacitus tells us that the Romans almost abandoned Britain. Britain was, you know, a major symbol to the Romans. It had been conquered for 17 years, and it had a real status as a Roman property. But the Romans may have considered abandoning Britain. They had to win back a lot of the territory that they'd already conquered. Now, London itself um, appears to have been burnt to the ground. We have very extensive layers of burning in London, both sides of the river, because London is developing both north and south of the river, probably with a bridge across the Thames by this time. And uh, however, despite the fact London's burnt, 
it seems to revive very quickly. Um, and this is, again, new information, really, that's emerged over the last 10 or 15 years. We did believe um, until the last 10 or so years that it took almost 10 years for London to really recover. So the quite extensive urban settlement that was developing prior to Boudicca's destru destruction of London seemed to take quite a lot of time to revive. There have been quite a number of discoveries uh, more recently that indicate that London is being refounded really very swiftly after its burning. And perhaps the most useful discovery is, again, uh, as a result of the Bloomberg writing tablets. And one of the tablets actually attests to two traders involved in trading in autumn 62 CE. So it looks as if London is up and running again as a port and economic centre within two years of being destroyed by Boudicca. Now, I should say, you know, all the materials I'm discussing in my book are really derived from the research of others. I'm pulling arguments together from synthesising other people's work. And the Bloomberg writing tablets have been um, transcribed and translated and discussed by Dr. Roger Tomlin of Oxford University. And I have to acknowledge his work, which I'm very much just incorporating into my own narrative in the book and in my talk today. So when they are rebuilding London, is it uh, are they simply reestablishing what they've already done or has uh, the uh, destruction of it by Boudicca and the Yeseni, have they, uh, are they developing it, are they introducing different uh, uh, elements or are they uh, developing it differently in the aftermath of that experience? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think a bit of both. There's a bit of continuity and a bit of change. They really reestablish the streets. So a number of, you know, quite a network of paved roads have been established, metal roads have been established by the time Boudicca burns London. And those are generally re reworked. You know, the, the debris is cleared off the site. So early Roman London is built of timber. Some of the houses have tar roofs. Uh, later on, London becomes, you know, the buildings become more, much more uh, based constructed from stone but early on timber and thatch are very common materials so the burning of London creates a very thick deposit of burnt material and this is cleared off the roads and the drainage is re-established the water supply is re-established very swiftly the port the port is evidently re-established very quickly so that all indicates continuity and some of the property boundaries from the uh, properties built before the Boudican Rebellion evidently reconstructed. And we might imagine that, you know, the same people are coming back in. If they actually fled, um, they had time to flee before London was burnt. They come back and they re-establish, they own or they rent particularly particular properties. And these people are probably coming back to resume their livelihood. There are quite major changes too. The most dramatic change is that we seem to have a more formal role for London. So London is established as a port, and I've been suggesting it's largely established by traders, but just after the Boudicca Rebellion, Bloomberg writing tablets are useful again because they start recording uh, members of the Roman military 
passing through the port of London. So we get mentions of several uh, soldiers. And we also have a Roman fort built um, quite soon after the rebellion within the area of uh, pre-Boudican London. So there is a major change, I think, because the, the government, the administration of the province are getting far more concerned to actually have a presence in London and they're using the port actually to disembark soldiers because most of the campaigning they need to do to regain control of Britain is to the north of the Thames. So London is a brilliant place to land soldiers and to station soldiers on their way to beat up and punish the communities who've been responsible for the burning of three Roman towns. The uh, fire started by Boudicca is quite probably the the second most famous fire in the history of London, Mm -hmm. perhaps only to the the Great Fire of 1666. And and so there was a a lot in there that that, that, uh, we've we've known and we're always learning more. What to me was was a a bit of a a, uh, surprise and, and and uh, was really fascinating, was reading about the second fire that takes place that you described as the Hadrianic fire. And I was wondering if you could perhaps, or Hadrianic fire, I was, was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about this and what it says about where London is by that period and, and, and how that fire differs from what Boudicca does. Yeah, it's more difficult to define the Hadrianic fire because although there are there's very, very good evidence for the second major phase of burning. So when you dig down through the preserved archaeology of Roman London, you know, it's metres thick. And then quite a number of sites, you know, within the Roman stratigraphy, they've been found uh, two layers of burning. And the first, you know, is generally uh, dated to a, uh, 60 CE by finds that are made within it. The second layer of burning um doesn't seem necessarily to date to one period. And I discuss this quite a lot in the book. Uh, it may be that we've got a number of distinct fires occurring. However, uh, there does seem to be some sort of coherence to this burning. Since I published my book, um, Dominic Perring has made another contribution to the archaeology of Roman London. So um, he's um, about the same age as me, I think, and he's still working in Roman London. He was the person who wrote the uh, last synthesis in 1990. And Dominic Perring has argued that there's a major rebellion in Britain in the early 120s, and uh, that London may actually have been burnt down again by a rebel army who uh, may derive from North, northern Britain. Um, one of the arguments is that another of Britain's famous monuments, Hadrian's Wall, was built actually as a response to this major rebellion. Now, I'm not sure I believe that uh, the second burning of London was a result of a major rebellion. Uh, Most of the archaeologists who've dug and discussed the second layer of burning seem to think it's not as coordinated an act of destruction as the Boudican burning layers. And one thing that doesn't seem to work at all is that by this stage, by the 120s, we have quite a number of public buildings in London. So we have a forum and we have an amphitheater and we have a number of other uh, quite substantial um, stone-built houses, courtyard houses. And on the whole, these places don't seem to have been burnt. So what we tend to find with the what's called the Hadrianic burning 
in the 120s is that it's the domestic and economic properties, you know, the, the houses and the shops that are being burnt down, not the public buildings. And if anybody's attacking Roman London, you know, with the idea of trying to drive the Romans out of Britain, we, we would expect the public buildings to sort of um, have the brunt of the destruction. Now, I'm not totally dismissing what Dominic Perrin says. I think it is interesting to think about that idea. Uh, London is, you know, the most important town in Britain by the late first century, early second century. It's the largest and most important place in Britain. And if people are rebelling, um, you know, it's possible that London is a victim of another rebellion. I tend to think it's more likely that the domestic properties in London are still timber bills and fire catches very easily. You know, if you have timber built houses and you have industry and you have people keeping warm in the winter, um, houses satellite, uh, you know, there is evidence for a fire brigade in some Roman towns in the Mediterranean and there would have been people around in London who would have been responsible for putting fires out. But I think it's more likely that we have a number of perhaps one very, very significant fire and a number of other fires, um, you know, within the urban centre around this time, and it's not actually a rebellion. We need more evidence, I have to say. I think on the whole, in the last 10 or 15 years, archaeologists haven't necessarily treated the Hadrianic fire quite as seriously as the Boudican fire, and perhaps we need another study of the evidence Again, I, I was thinking about how that underscores just how much we we're, we're still learning about uh, about Roman London and, and how much there's out there still to discover. It's really fascinating. Mm. Well, I wouldn't like to think. I mean, I, I've tried to synthesize the information, but I wouldn't. I'm not trying to establish a sort of set way of interpreting London. I very much encourage. You know, I think I'd encourage um, anybody who's involved in the archaeology of Roman London to sort of respond to what I've I've been saying in my book by thinking critically about whether the things I'm, I'm arguing work. As you uh, mentioned, though, by this point, Roman London's a you know, very important town, and these fires don't set back its growth. I was wondering if you could perhaps discuss a bit the uh, later development of Londinium in, in the second century CE. In what ways was it uh, emerging, and, and what life w- was like as we've uh, learned through the archaeology? Well, it really continues sort of expanding and developing. And again, I tend to think back to earlier accounts of Roman London that did what I might call periodizing the archaeology. I've talked about the fact that we need to think about the Iron Age when we look at the early Roman history of London. But also we need to think about the first century when we move into the second century. I I really do think the archaeology of Roman London, you know, the the status and character of the town continues to develop for a long time. So the old story, going back to the 1990s, and this has continued to be an influential image um, up to the present, is that London really goes into quite a decline in the late second century. Now, the argument behind this is that although we have some very impressive public buildings, in fact, for instance, um, London is much more visible as a religious centre from the late second century onward, we get many more temples that we can identify and more um, sculptures indicating religious behaviour. 
from the late second century and the third century than we do from the first century of London's existence. The argument is that the population of Roman London goes into decline and the town becomes less heavily populated and economically less important. Now, I do believe, and I argue in my book, that the port probably becomes less significant because trade in Britain is less centralised. There's less coming in from the continent and less being exported, we think, by the third century than there is during the first century of London's existence. Um, it's still true that this is a major, the largest, most major urban settlement in Britain. Now, the reason for thinking there might be a decline in population I believe, and I argue this in the book quite forcefully, is because the later layers of Roman London are less well-preserved than the early layers. So when we look at the domestic buildings within the city and the commercial buildings, we don't get as well-preserved evidence for buildings from the late 2nd century through to the early 5th century as we do for the early phases. This is partly because the... The earlier phases of buildings are more deeply buried, and partly because they're more waterlogged. So the majority of buildings, the majority of houses in London, are built of timber. And in the upper Roman layers, from the late 2nd century to the early 5th century, the timber buildings are less well-preserved. They're less well-conserved. The wood is deteriorated more. And there's also more later disturbance of the late Roman deposits, and I've argued, and I have uh, information to back this up, and I've based this on other people's research too, that Roman London continues to be a really significant urban centre in terms of its population right into the 4th century. So it's a monumental city with um, large elaborate stone-built houses, with temples, with public buildings, and also with a large population of people living in less elaborate, less substantial buildings, tenants, and also slaves. I mean, slaves will have been really, really significant um, within Roman London. We find it quite hard to recognize slaves in the archeological record, but they will have been a substantial proportion of the population of Roman London throughout its lifetime. The chapter where you're discussing this period, actually, I found it to be very fascinating because you raise a lot of points that, that really create a very fascinating picture of London during this period. I, I was thinking particularly about the temples because, you know, I, I, I think temples uh, in Roman times and, and in, initially what I might think of are, of course, the, the classic Roman pantheon. And yet you're describing a, you know, a temple to Isis. You're describing a temple to Mithras. I mean, you're describing what is really a very cosmopolitan London, a London that in many ways is not that much different than London is today. Well, some, I think some of the sort of connections between the present and the past are really interesting. I suppose to an extent, you know, archaeologists today really um, exploit that. So the Museum of London, who've undertaken a lot of the work that I'm reviewing in my book, are very aware of, you know, public interest and also their role in education the public. And they tend to, you know, dwell on topics that seem particularly relevant today. Now, the religious aspect is certainly very interesting. I... You know, we, we have really, really good information for a whole range of cults that are practiced in London, um, including Christianity. Uh, the Bloomberg development that I keep mentioning, um, they have um, uh, 
constructed in their basement um, uh, a display of the Roman temple, temple to Mithras. This is a late Roman temple to an Eastern god who um, was the god of uh, the sun, and he was worshipped particularly by traders and by military people. And you can visit the remains of the Temple of Mithras if you go into the Bloomberg building. Uh, there's a free display, which is well worth visiting if you're in London. Now, we have a range of temples and evidence for the worship of a whole um, variety of gods. But when we think of you know London as being cosmopolitan in the Roman period, the population of Roman London is derived from right across the Roman world. We have very good evidence from recent archaeological um, science for people coming to London from North Africa and from the uh, Middle East, as well as from Gaul and Germany. Uh, so the population of Roman London was derived from right across uh, the area that surrounds the Mediterranean and into Northern Europe. Um, and we can imagine, you know, the people living in London were very, very mixed in the, in the way they sort of view the world and the way they live their lives. And they all appear to have got on pretty, pretty well together. I mean, all urban centres have, you know, pressures and causes of disruption. And that's very difficult to recognise in archaeology. But, uh, you know, they're buried in cemeteries together. They live in communities together without too much trouble. Um, all these things, you know, do seem relevant today. Uh, London's still a very substantial multicultural community of people, the vast majority of whom get on extremely well together. Another aspect that, uh, in terms of these discoveries that I thought was fascinating, you, you've been talking about the, the bodies that we've been finding, and you, you, you point out that it's not necessarily even human bodies that enliven our understanding. It's also, you describe at one point about you, we, how a, a skull of a bear is found in uh, some village and, and what this suggests about, you know, entertainments and the, the, the range of, of, of uh, activities that, that brought people to London. The, the fact that this bear was probably from further north and been transported down for perhaps bear baiting or something like that and how, and how that also can help us to better understand what these lives were like back then. Yes, the, uh, the the archaeological research on animal remains is really important. I, I, another topic that I talk about in the book is um, the ritual significance of dogs, because dogs are often incorporated in deposits on sites that are obviously connected to making offerings to the gods. So people have dogs as hunting dogs and as pets in the Roman period. They also have a deep significance in people, some people's religious beliefs. And looking at animals, you know, gives archaeologists a completely different take on um, the past of these communities. Now, I'm writing another book at the moment on the conquest of Roman Britain. And one of the things I'm doing in that is looking at um, uh, another bear, because the bears come from what's called Caledonia. So Caledonia is the far north of Scotland. And Caledonian bears were quite famous in the Roman period. So the one that um, is found in a well in late Roman London may have been, um, you know, in the amphitheatre at London, he may have been attacking criminals or fighting with other wild animals. But um, when the Colosseum in Rome is uh, in its opening ceremony under the Emperor Titus, they have a Caledonian bear, which... Um, basically is used to savage uh, a, a criminal who's being executed in the Colosseum. 
So Caledonian bears from northern Scotland were not just used in Roman London. They were taken to Rome itself. What can archaeology tell us about the last century of the, of Roman London? What, what how, how does how does it change as the empire gets in the, in the West gets into trouble? And at what point does can we talk about Roman London coming to an end? Yeah, the first question is easier to answer than the second one in a way. Um, in terms of what happens in the last century uh, of Roman rule, we'd think um, Roman London seems to come to an end um, in the early 5th century. And this is when uh, the Roman Empire ceases to control Britain. Um, we have very little from the walled city of London, and the walls of Roman London are built in um, the, the century and a half before this period I'm talking about now. So they're 3rd they're, uh, century, roughly. Uh, the walled city seems to be quite substantially abandoned by the early 5th century. Um, but during the 4th century, we have continuous evidence for very important things occurring in London. I would accept, despite what I was saying about the fact I don't think the population of Roman London declines in the 3rd century, that by the mid to late 4th century, the population of the town is probably reducing uh, to an extent. Um, but we've still got important building operations occurring, and the town walls are maintained um, right into the late 4th, early 5th century, and they're re-fortified. So we have bastions added to the external faces of the town walls in the 4th uh, century. Um, so this is a very important, uh, it's still an important port probably, but it's a very important economic centre and a very important political centre. Um, coming into the late 4th, early 5th century. Now, things really fall apart, as far as we can see, in the early 5th century. There is a problem with this, because the Roman Empire moved around a lot of produce. So during the whole of the occupation of Roman London, uh, we have a lot of pottery coming in from overseas. We have um, wine and coins coming in. Now, in the early 5th century, all these things dry up. And this is interpreted as evidence for decline and the eventual abandonment of Roman London. But there is another way of seeing it, because if the imported things that arrive in London are drying up, it may be that the communities who inhabit the place are still trying to hang on using possessions that they're um, curating. And if this is the case, you know, it's very hard for archaeologists to date the late Roman deposits and to know quite when uh, the Roman walled town was abandoned. I tend to think, I mean, the dominant view, and I suppose a lot of what I'm doing is synthesising what other people have argued, is that the walled area of Roman London comes to an end in the early 5th century. And actually it may be quite a dangerous place to go because the masonry buildings start collapsing so you possibly don't want to be doing things in the walled area of Roman London. Now, I wouldn't see a major catastrophe. I think this is a gradual abandonment. Um, but we do have information, which I've looked at in the book again, for people continuing to live and bury their dead to the south and the west of Roman London. So some areas of the suburbs of Roman London, the areas outside the walls, may continue to be occupied, and new uh, settlements and communities are developing too in the outskirts of London 
Now, the picture of uh, immediately post-Roman Britain, southeastern Britain, is almost of catastrophe traditionally, that things come to an end and new people come in. So Britain gets invaded by Angles and Saxons. Today, archaeologists tend to feel that, you know, the process wasn't that simple. Okay, new people come in. They were coming in all through the Roman period too. But some of the local populations hang on too. And I argue in my book, there's probably quite a lot more continuity between late Roman and early Saxon London than has been argued in the past. Again, I'm looking at the idea that we have more continuity. Okay, change occurs, but there's also continuity. Rather than separating, you know, Roman London entirely off from Saxon London. Now, in the middle to late Saxon period, London becomes a really, really important urban centre again. But that's going beyond uh, the time scope of my book. I don't deal with anything after the 5th to 6th century in the book. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you elaborate a bit on what you're working on now? Yeah, I'm doing two things at the moment. I'm actually doing more than two things, but the two major things I'm doing are um, I've got a project called Ancient Identities, which is funded by an organisation called the um, Arts and Humanities Research Council. Uh, The Arts and Humanities Research Council funded quite a lot of my research in the past and I am very, very grateful to them. Uh, They fund a lot of uh, academic research in Britain. Um, Now this project, Ancient Identities, is looking at Iron Age and Roman heritage in Britain. So what we're trying to do with that one is to um, look at how the Iron Age and Roman periods are called on by all sorts of people in Britain today. So we're looking at education at schools, We're looking at uh, open-air museums where we have reconstructed buildings. We're looking at museum displays. Um, We're looking at community projects which draw on the Iron Age and Roman period. And one of my colleagues, Dr. Chiara Bernacki, is looking at digital heritage. So she's been doing a lot of work at how people think about the Iron Age and Roman past on the internet. So that's one project which is resulting in two new books. the first of which should be published in about a year, a year and a half, I think. My second project is looking at the conquest of Roman Britain. So I have a book contract to write a book on the period between Julius Caesar, and he invades Britain in um, 54 uh, CE. And uh, my book ends with the uh, construction of Hadrian's Wall in the 120 CE. Uh, and that is due to be finished in about a year's time. So I'm very busy at the moment working on that book, and I'm really enjoying it. I mean, it's another synthesis, but it's very different from Roman London. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like it is. Well, well, thank you for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.